0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather. Now at champacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Talk show. Recorded live.
1: Hey everybody. Today is April 27th, 2015. Can you believe it? And this is The Mixed Experience. It's a weekly podcast by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed up world. And it's the only live weekly show about being racially and culturally mixed. I'm your host, Heidi Durow, your resident mixed chick. And I don't know, I feel a little giddy today, very honestly. Uh, One, because we have a really great guest uh, today. And this is something I want to do more of going forward. I really want to make sure that we have more listener spotlights. So today we have a listener and, um, and a reader of The Girl Who Fell from the Sky and, and I think of a, a developing friend, which is even more exciting, uh, Peg Bolduke. But before I get her on the line, I do have a couple of announcements. I hope you guys don't tire of hearing about this because this project has my heart As much as my writing has my heart, so does this project. If you follow the podcast or me or anything mixed, I hope you know about the Mixed Remixed Festival. This is a festival that I founded and I produce with a team of 30 volunteers. We're all volunteers, no one gets paid. And we do this every June. This year it's June 13th, 2015 in downtown Los Angeles at the Japanese American National Museum. We have an incredible schedule of events, of panel presentations and workshops. We have a free workshop with the writer Jamie Ford, who wrote Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Free. It's free. In fact, here's the thing. The entire festival is free. Now, there is a caveat to this. It's not free to produce. We beg, borrow, and barter everything we can, but there's a lot of stuff we still need money for. And right now we're doing a crowdfunder. We have one week left, and we're just so close to making our $10,000 goal. I think we just need maybe $2,200 still, and then we'll make that goal to be able to have a successful festival again this year. If you can donate, please do. Go to www.mixedremix.org, and there's a little button that says donate over on the right-hand side just click it and then click through if you give five dollars that means everything to me to the team seriously it says that you value it that it's important to you that we should keep doing it this takes an incredible amount of time and and money and effort and energy and favors and commitment and we want to make sure our crowdfunder is funded by a crowd. So if we can't really get people, like the people don't support it, then we might have to figure out what to do next. But if the people don't really value it, then maybe we need to do it some other way. Um, not a threat at all, I hope it doesn't sound like a threat, but it really is so important that we know that you guys think it's important, and really $5 registers that. If you want to give a $1,000, now that's also nice too, and then you get to go to dinner with Keegan-Michael Key. I'm just saying, I might take that perk if no one's going to take that by the end of the week on Monday. www.mixedremix.org. Okay, I guess that's it. And also register, please register. We want to know that you're coming. It's all free. We have two uh, receptions that we'll be giving wine and food and dessert for free, but we need to know you're coming. So register. Go to the website www.mixedremix.org. Okay, enough of that. I get on this whole tangent when I when I do all of that. I'm excited to welcome a really wonderful guest today and. Guys, here's the thing, like I get so excited when I get emails from people, whether you're a listener of the podcast or you're a reader of The Girl Who Fell from the Sky, I'm excited by that, like the greatest gift for a writer, for a storyteller of any stripe is to get stories in return and I was so delighted one day, not too long ago, to get an email from Peg Mouse Bolduc. She's a 42-year-old mixed chick. She's a wife and mother of three amazing kids, and she's actively pursuing her dream of creating a place for foster children where they will be loved, nurtured, and given every chance to create the life they want. Peg is the biological daughter of a young white American mother and a black father who said he was from Trinidad, and she was placed for adoption at birth. In March 2014, she succeeded was successfully reunited with her biological mother. Through DNA testing, Peg has discovered that she is 34% African, 61% European, and 5% West Asian, uh, Middle East or Caucasus. And and she's uh, just a wonderful spirit. Who has a great story to share. I'm really excited to welcome Peg to the show. Hi, Peg.
0: Hi, Heidi. Okay. You're giddy, too. That's good. This
1: is a good sign. We're going to have a good time.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is wonderful. So you listen to
1: the show, and you have probably, like, totally written out an answer or prepped yourself for the first question, which is the standard first question, which is,
0: what are you? Mm -hmm. Well now I'm 43. I had a birthday last week. So yeah, <laughs> oh, happy <laughs> belated. Thank you. Thank you. So now I'm I'm, you know, I'm a 43-year-old mixed chick. And I think um that's really you know, I mean you said the mo- most of it in my bio, but uh most of it is that I'm a 43-year-old mixed chick and I have African and I have European. And yeah. Well, so let, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning because you, um, you, have a, I mean,
1: you have a very interesting family history, and I really want to talk to you about the way in which your siblings identify differently, but you were adopted uh, young, and tell us about the family you were adopted into.
0: Well, I was adopted when I was three months old, and I was adopted into um, an all-white family and then basically an all-white environment. Um, My parents had three boys that were their natural sons, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and then they adopted my sister uh, in 1969, and she was biracial, she is biracial, Um, and then three years later they adopted me. So I grew up, excuse me, I grew up in a predominantly white environment, and my sister and I were the only uh, biracial kids in our environment. And, no. But you also
1: had an aunt and uncle who were also involved with um, foster kids. And so that did that diversify your family set, or were they not nearby you guys?
0: Well, they were about an hour away, and we saw my aunt and uncle um, had four natural children, and then they also adopted two biracial girls. Um, so my cousin, my one cousin, is she's my age, and then the other cousin is a year younger than my sister. So we're all around the same age. Um, and we grew up, it was, my cousin is, my younger cousin, Mary, is amazing. She's, um, you know, kind of has been like a friend to me, like my best friend throughout my whole life. Because she, and my cousins, were the, the four of us are the ones who understand what it's like to be mixed. And we understand what it's like to be adopted. And we understand what it's like to grow up as the only biracial people in an all-white environment. And it was really hard. It was really hard growing. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you, talk about,
1: you talked about in your letter that people never really understood you or it was difficult to find friendships because they couldn't quite place you because of your coloring and there was something different about you. How did you navigate that?
0: Well, um, I think, I don't know that I really did navigate it very well actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean be told, I don't think I've navigated it at all myself. <laughs> right. It's kind of like you I don't know, I would go through situations. You know, my friends the thing that I wrote to you about was that my friends um you know, would say, Well you couldn't tell. You can't tell that you're mixed except for your hair or you can't really tell um that you're mixed uh, except for your skin. I mean, your skin, you're, you know, you're like kind of dark, but you're not totally dark. So this, there was always a comparison and it seems, it didn't seem to happen with anybody else, but it did happen with me. So my friends weren't comparing each other. They weren't comparing their hair or their skin color, but I, it was always pointed out to me that what made me different, which then in turn made me feel that I wasn't good enough and I wasn't, um, I wasn't white enough and I also wasn't black enough. So I didn't have a place where, I belonged, and I think that was probably the hardest part growing up was that I never felt like I belonged anywhere
1: and, but and your sister, who was biracial, your sister who was also adopted um, but from different parents, she was able to navigate this differently because i don't I don't know why, like I mean in my own family, I have two brothers, and I think we all. Each of us has a very different experience of how we experienced our difference in, in different settings, and I wondered, were you able to look to her as an example, or or did you guys not even talk about it? Because my brothers and I, we didn't talk about this until, I think, five years ago, <laughs> like, until I was forty.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't. My sister and I never really talked about it. I can't say until actually last night. I was <clears throat> messaging her. We were texting and. And I asked her very specific questions, like how was it for you? Because I never asked her, you know, what was it, right. what was it like what, for you? But what is that about, Peg? Like, <laughs> I mean, do you think it's like our our
1: time, our age, or or is it just like I don't know that there's so much shame around well, even confessing the difference, right?
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, my sister and I, she. She uh dated black men in high school and eventually married a black man and you know all of her children are from black men and I married a white man and uh had my three children with my husband and uh she you know we both were teased, both of us were teased growing up um even our brothers would tease us um, for her, it was harder because she liked black men and <clears throat> identified more with the black part of her and my brothers weren't necessarily accepting of that and and neither were the people in our environment because she was different and but no one ever told us how we were really supposed to act so it was it was hard and confusing
1: and did she feel that same kind of um, wishing that she could talk to you is that something you guys were able to discuss in this last week no, I feel like it, maybe I, this is the kind of a coming out for you, Peg, isn't it? This is very
0: awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, it, it is. Oh, I mean, most people who know me know that. I mean, I'll I'll talk about my story, and I'll um, and I'm not afraid to talk about it. But I think what's hard for me is that, you know, with my friends and family, it's different. But with people that I meet or people, you know, that I pass on the street or in the stores or you know wherever I go, um, the hard part is that I still get looked and people still look at me and people still, you know, and and it's hard and sometimes maybe people are just being curious because I'm just a person who walked by but unfortunately because of my experiences and because of the way people um have talked to me and uh I don't always take it as a positive thing when people look at me. I usually take it as a negative. Like, oh, they're trying to figure out what I am or oh, I look weird to them or you know. I don't I, know if that I makes totally sense. understand that. I mean, I
1: think it's... I don't mean to be dramatic about it, but in my case, it's like a form of post-traumatic stress disorder where you're constantly (laughs) wondering, like, when is the next microaggression going to happen to me? When I, like, just about every day that I go out and deal with a merchant or whatever, if I'm, like, out in the public sphere and I'm not there as, like, a public person, there is someone that's going to ask me, oh, why are your eyes that color or what are you or like there's I mean I I understand that stress all the time. I wonder if there's like any way we can start to shed that
0: <laughs> as we get well, older. It, yeah. Yeah, I I thought that it wouldn't happen with my my kids. I thought that my kids would escape it. Um sadly, I'm mistaken. My daughters have experienced uh just as much as I have and you have and, and everyone else has. My oldest daughter looks like me, so she gets it a lot more than um, than my other daughter. But uh, but they do. People still. I can't believe that 35 years later, people are still using the exact same terminology, the same words, um, and the. I don't know. I think my cousin put it pretty well when she said it's it's. It's a lot of nerve for someone to just. Okay, here's what I do. I asked my husband the other day. I said, "Honey, has anyone ever come up to you and asked you, and asked and said, what are you?" And he looked at me and laughed and said, "No." And I said, "Exactly." <laughs> I said, I said, "But for me, it's a it's a regular occurrence. You know, every day someone is, you know, uh, puzzled by me or and, and the same happens with my daughter. So, you know, I think it it's been very very helpful to listen to your podcast. The girl who fell from the sky was life changing. It was an absolutely life changing book for me. Wow, um, thank you wow. <laughs> it was It was the first time I told you it was the first time that it you gave you gave words to the feeling yeah and and I don't know that people understand that a person of mixed race it doesn't mean that I'm any better than anybody or any less than anyone, and I think that really is uh the message that I want to give that I I still um, cry tears I cry the same tears as my cousin Mary said and I believe the same we all do it I mean and it's so interesting because
1: I I, I am always trying to be very sensitive and navigate this correctly because I don't believe in this, this idea of the tragic mulatto. In fact, I hope that everything I'm doing in, in my work and my writing kind of goes against that idea that, that, that there's no such thing as a tragic mulatto. Like a tragedy has happened to us in many respects where we mm-hmm. have been denied a, a place in history and, and the stories that are our stories going back have been denied us and even our voice, like we haven't even been allowed to voice it. And, and there's this, like, this really tricky moment where even still, which is so interesting, that I worry that people are hearing, oh, Heidi doesn't want to be African-American. You know, she doesn't want to be black. She wants to just talk about her whiteness. And what you're talking about also is you just want to talk about your experience, like who exactly you are as opposed to an idea of who you are.
0: Right. Right, exactly. And I'm not, I don't, I feel that because I'm biracial, and my mom told me this growing up, she said that I was special because I had, well, first I was special because I was picked, because I was adopted. And the second reason I was special is because I had the best of both worlds. And my parents never put that on my sister or me to pick, to pick a race. They, Mm -hmm. it was always said, and it was always, and I always knew that I was biracial and that's how I lived my life, and it wasn't until I was 18 that I started to see that the world actually thinks of me as black, and I was like, well, that's, I don't understand that, and then, you know, that's when I did some research, and, uh, but I still identify as biracial, Not, and I, I'm i not going to deny the white part of me, and I'm not going to deny the black part of me, like, my story is my, my ancestral heritage is really cool, and, that's a fascinating story and I'm happy to talk about that but yes I I want you to because I I think it's so
1: I think it's so interesting the ways in which like when I talk to people about growing up mixed you know around the country now which has been so excited and people of different generations you're younger than I am but but not by much um, (laughs) since you just had your birthday Um, but in our generation I, I felt like we weren't allowed to save it, like we weren't allowed to talk about this. And, you know, I was coming of age in high school before the Tiger Woods era, and then I remember when he came out and he talked about being Calvin asian people just freaked out about it. Um, and, and it does feel like things have changed in some ways. And, and then in a lot of ways, you know, it hasn't changed at all. But I also have noticed that, you know, people go through these, Well, not a crisis of identity, but certainly like a moment of questioning, all right, if this is how the world sees me, how, you know, how do I deal with that? So, you know, it happens at puberty when people start pairing off, you know, divided among the races, and then it seems to happen again in college where you have to show your allegiance to a different um, tribe or group or whatever it is. And now it's happening for like me in my 40s where I'm suddenly thinking, Wow. Okay. So where do I, where do I go with this identity thing? Like, can't I be done with being angsty about it? (laughs) Even after having written a book, you know, like I've tried to get it out, but I still feel like I have a lot of questions. So is that kind of the place you were at when you decided to do the DNA? Because I will tell you, I don't want to do the DNA. I'm scared of it. (laughs)
0: Oh, it, well, it for me, the, the reason I needed to do it or I felt that I needed to do it was because we can't find my biological father. And, okay. um, and when I was adopted, um, there were two potential fathers, one who was white and one who was from Trinidad. So those are two, you know, um, <laughs> pretty opposite. So uh, I figured the DNA testing would help me rule out one of the fathers, which it did. So uh, so for me, it was, it, you know, being adopted is its own thing. And so I kind of feel like I have uh, a double whammy because not only am I adopted, but I'm also biracial. So uh, I feel like for me, the DNA testing helped me answer a little bit more of who I am, where I come from, and why do I look the way I look. So I think it helped with that anxiety a lot.
1: And the breakdown, I think, is interesting. I mean, I always talk about how I hate when people try to do math on my family when they <laughs> see us together. <laughs> the math of your ancestry test is really fascinating. You, you're you only 34% African. Yeah. How does,
0: like, <laughs> I, I I don't know. How did that settle with you? Well, it made me, well, if my father, uh, if my biological father is from Trinidad, well, actually, I just received my original birth certificate because the adoption records in Ohio were unsealed. So I just received my oh original my birth certificate. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So my original birth certificate says that my biological father was born in West Indies. So Trinidad, West Indies, there's a lot of European mix there. So uh, Yeah.
1: You could be and, part Danish. I mean, he could be from one of the, you know, Danish West Indies, the U.S. That's Virgin right. Islands. That's right. We could be cousins, Peg.
0: I <laughs> know. Yay. That would be awesome. That would be cool. <laughs> so, well, and yeah. then
1: you're six, 61% European and then 5% West Asian. I, that seems, was that a surprise piece of
0: it? Yes. We. I don't know where that came from. We'll hopefully... <laughs> Hopefully, that's from my father. i don't know well we'll I don't know i'll I'll let you know what happens with that
1: you You have to
0: now where now where do you
1: go with this like one of the questions I keep trying to ask myself is when when might I feel at peace with this? like when do I not have to make my mission to write about these things and tell these stories Do you have an answer for yourself?
0: yeah I think for me it's when we can have real conversations i think in in society about where it's not a shameful thing to mm-hmm. say that you're mi- to your, that you're mixed when it's not um, to look at a, a biracial person or a person of mixed race and it not be a conversation about why you look different I think it's when we can move away from the looks of somebody and a person being judged on the color of their skin, I think for me that'll that'll be good. So I'm not quite sure. Yeah, that's not going to happen anytime soon, is, <laughs> is it? It's like, we have our is. work cut out for us. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm I'm pretty determined, so I don't know. I'll I'll. It's a work in progress for sure, but I think. You know, through my kids um, and through leading by example and by not being afraid to talk about it, and um, I hope to to at least maybe change the opinions in my small sphere of influence. Hopefully,
1: I, I think that's so important, and I think your kids are so lucky that they have a parent who's willing to have this conversation that actually has no answers to it right like it it mostly has questions and and a lot of confusion but they're so lucky that you're able to talk to them about these things you you also are trying to actually create a place that would that would be like this I mean not just for biracial kids but for all kids can you tell us more about that project
0: Yes, well, this is my dream, and uh, my dream is to create a place for foster children where, um, like I said, you know, they'll be loved and nurtured and cared for, and the inspiration for that comes from, number one, being adopted. Number two, my family and my aunt and uncle uh, had foster children. My aunt and uncle, they were foster parents for 30 years, they had foster children. That's just wow. amazing. Yeah, amazing. Um, so as a kid growing up, there was always a baby at uh, my aunt uncle's house. And so it was great. <laughs> there was always a baby. And, and each every baby had a story. And some of them were very tragic stories. And, uh, you know, I just feel like, for me, I observed with my children, let's turn in the segue just a second, but I observed with my children that Race didn't really become an issue, and some of the, you know, harmful things that kids say didn't really come about until the kids kind of got into, you know, late elementary school, early middle school. And so, you know, I feel like um, I want to help kids that, for whatever reason, that they're not with their family. I just want to make sure that they have a place where they can be loved and not feel that they don't belong or feel that they're different, Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, adults, who were in the foster care system, and their stories are tragic, their stories are heartbreaking, and there are far too many children in foster care, and if I can create a place where these children can be loved and cared for and grow into contributing members of society, then that would just be amazing.
1: It's so important. It's really important work that you're doing, so... um, But let us know how that goes. And then also, I mean, this idea of kids discovering race at that age, it's just so heartbreaking to me because I saw that in my own experience and the people around me, that because there was so much silence around issues of race, the kids ended up teaching each other about what race was, which is just kind of the worst way to learn something from another kid. Because what yes. they did was they learned from TV and film and movies, whatever they could glean, and then just kind of the silent spaces where adults didn't talk about that stuff. Um, okay. I, I just read this wonderful book. Uh, I have the author coming on the podcast actually on Wednesday this week. It's a special episode. And he's a, a white man. It's called uh, How I Shed My Skin by Jim Grimsley. And he's, grew up in the 1960s in North Carolina uh, as a white man who was poor and gay, uh, recognizing very early on that he was gay. And it's so fascinating and um, kind of devastating the way he writes about how he learned racism through the silences in his own family around race and learned his, that he should feel superior as a white person because of it. And I just feel like, is there some way we can unring those bells in people? I mean, not just white people, but also black people and also mixed race people to figure out how to talk more honestly, even at a very young age, to kids. I I don't know. Is is there a formula?
0: (laughs) I think we're working on it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, you know, I I talk to my kids about uh, being compassionate. And that's how I try to live my life. I really, I don't judge a book by its cover. I never, um, you know, everyone has a story and you don't know their story unless you ask. So I encourage my children before they make judgments on a person to try and understand where that person is coming from. Even if someone is really mean to them, just try and have a little bit of compassion and understand where they're coming from. And I don't know, through compassion, it seems like that would also create some understanding, which would then hopefully break it down. Yeah,
1: I think that's so right. I mean, and that really is kind of the the philosophy behind the festival, even, that when you can share stories, like when you can enter the experience of someone who is not you, that opens up your world, and it also creates empathy in a way that... um, makes a meaningful connection for you ultimately. And it's just really great to have a bunch of mixed people in a dark room watching giant mixed people faces,
0: <laughs> very honestly. We have to get you to the festival
1: at some point. Like It's just such oh. an amazing, amazing thing.
0: So yes, it's not this
1: year than next year.
0: <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I donated. So everybody go donate. Go donate yes, to the festival. Thank you. Go donate. <laughs> because
1: Peg donated and she's wonderful and we're forever grateful. And um and we want to keep this thing going. It's really important. Any last words for us or any last thoughts? Because I, I feel like we need a follow up. Now that you have the birth record and you're going to have more information, like maybe in about six months or nine months, you'll come back and tell us what's going on.
0: That would be awesome. and hopefully I will have found my biological father and I can give a whole story about that. Yeah. That would be awesome. And
1: I would really love to um, to know more about that because there are so many of us who have the, a similar story, who are biracial, who were adopted. Keegan Michael Key also is biracial and adopted, by the way.
0: Yes, love hey. him, love him, hey. love him to death.
1: And and it'd be so interesting, I think, for people to figure out um, what that journey is like, because some of the people I know were adopted by white families, and some were adopted by black families, and like Keegan, he was adopted by a by an interracial couple, so. Uh, and and then to figure out like where do you settle with identity once you actually know the the biological, you know, the biological story, like how does that change you ultimately? So, yeah, you have to come back. That basically is what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> awesome. I'd love to.
1: I'd love to. Great. Right. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. This has been a fantastic listener spotlight interview. Um, if you guys are out there and listening and have stories like Peg's or or even not like Peg's, but you'd like to share them, I really want to hear your stories. It means so much to me. Peg, thank you so much, and I hope I get to meet you in real life at some point soon. Me too. Me
0: too. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you.
1: Okay. okay
0: bye-bye.
1: Bye. Oh, my gosh. She is so brave, okay, because... You know, she wrote me this really lovely, heartfelt email, and I didn't answer it for a long time because I wanted to write something heartfelt and lovely back, and, well, her email made me cry (laughs) because I thought, wow, you know, I shared a story, and now she's sharing her story, and now we have created this bond, and this community, and that's kind of what this podcast, I hope, is. And I definitely hope the festival feels like that for you guys. So, anyway, Peg, thanks for writing me. I, I would love to hear from other listeners as well. I, I really, I'm buoyed by your stories, and it, it makes me feel less alone. So, I hope it makes you feel less alone. All right, <laughs> I'm getting a little emotional here. I think I'll stop while I'm ahead. Uh, Thanks for listening today, guys. Thanks for everyone who was in the chat room. Um, Peg's got a huge fan base, which is great to know. I'm going to start using her social media handle all the time now. And um, I am actually back on Wednesday again with another show at 5 o'clock Eastern. And it is with this writer, Jim Grimsley, who's written this really fascinating, difficult-to-read memoir because it's so devastating and heartbreaking. But I like that kind of book called How I Shed My Skin, and I'll be interviewing him on Wednesday live at 5 p.m. Eastern. So, So join me for that bonus episode. I think it'll be really great. The subtitle of the memoir is Unlearning the Racist Lessons of a Southern Childhood. All right? I think you want to be part of that. Alright guys, my name is Heidi DeRoe. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a chance, would you go over and do a review on iTunes? That help so much. That'd be so great. And um, send me your ideas for shows, any listener spotlight interviews that I should do. Heidi at HeidiWDeRoe.com. It's been great talking to you today and I'll talk to you again on Wednesday. Bye guys.